Hi, my name is Caroline Durham and I'm the Minister of Children here at Heights Baptist Church. Thanks for joining us online today. You can find our content on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and at our website, heightschurch.org slash connect. You can let us know that you joined us today um, and let us know how we can be praying for you. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, everyone. My name's Dustin. I'm not one of the pastors here. Um, I am going to be giving the message this morning, and uh, our primary text this morning is going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 17, uh, verses 45 and 47. We're going to look at a little bit more than that, but that's going to be the main part and what I'm going to read first this morning. So if you want to turn there in your Bibles or if you have a device that you use, um, please do so. And um, as Matt said earlier in his introduction of me, I am one of the life group leaders here. I uh, have a life group that meets in the second service. And if you were here a few weeks ago when Pastor Lee asked me to do as Sister Terry just did and stand up and introduce my life group, um, I got up here and I was so much more nervous than I expected to be. Um, I've actually spoken in front of, I've, I've preached a f like quite a few times in this area and I thought I would be fine and I got really nervous. And I forgot to do like the main thing that I was getting up there to do, which was to invite everyone to my life group. And it's like, as soon as I sat down, I was like, you know, I said what my life group was, but I never actually said, hey, I, guys, I invite you to come and join with us. And I echo everything that she just said. It was fantastic. Um, and exactly why you should be part of one of our uh, life groups here at the church. But I came up to uh, Pastor Lee after that service because he jumped up right afterwards and bailed me out. He invited people to my life group, explained what I was doing up there. Uh, and I was like, dude, thank you so much for doing that. And he's like, hey, you know, that's what we do. We take care of each other. So this week when Pastor Lee's not feeling well, you know, and I get a text on Friday evening. Yeah, I can step in. So activated off the practice squad on Friday, had a walkthrough yesterday, ready to start today. Um, and here we are. Um, also, uh, to give you a little peek behind the curtain, too, Matt will probably be annoyed with me telling you this, but let's see. Um, uh, you know, they, they do so much thought in the service and how they're set up and the scriptures that are preached and the songs that go along with it. So Pastor Lee is going to continue our series in Mark that we've been walking through next week. So that whole uh, worship set that was picked out for this morning is shifting to next week. So Pastor Matt called an audible this morning, and he and our praise team practiced and did an entirely new set. Um, and that's just fantastic dedication and fantastic work by them. So I just want to show them our appreciation through applause this morning on the work that they do. Because <clears throat> without knowing that, I wouldn't have been able to tell because they do such a fantastic job. So let's look this morning at our text, and I'm going to read our text, and then I'm going to pray um, for our time of preaching and teaching this morning. So 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 45 through 47. And David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of Yahweh the Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day Yahweh will deliver you into my hands. And I will strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give you the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals. And the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And those gathered here will know that it is not by the sword and spear that Yahweh saves. For the battle 
is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. Pray with me now. Lord, we do recognize you as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We know that the victory is yours. So we come now in hope, recognizing your faithfulness, remembering your promises to us, knowing that your word is powerful and we seek to learn more of you. So Lord, I do pray that in this time you send your spirit amongst us, that you use your spirit to conform our hearts and minds more into your likeness by the teaching of your word. In Christ's name I pray, amen. All right, so the story we're looking at this morning is a familiar story, obviously to those who attend church and come to church and are raised in church, but this is a story that even people who aren't Christians are familiar with. But often when people think about this story, they draw and focus on the immense difference between this giant and this young shepherd boy. But I'm going to shift our focus a little bit this morning because I want to focus on the distinction between that young boy and the king of Israel. Because you see, this story begins with a massive failure. Saul fails the people of Israel and he sins against God spectacularly in two different ways. The first way is Saul actually fails at the main role that the Israelites wanted him to do for them. If you look back earlier in 1 Samuel, and you look in chapter 8, the people of Israel came to the guy who was leading the Israelites at that time, the prophet Samuel, and they demanded a king. The people had rejected Samuel's leadership, but bigger than that, God told it out, pointed out to Samuel that they were rejecting God's leadership. They were rejecting God as their king. And instead, they wanted to put their hope in a human. So God instructed Samuel to tell them, tell the people of all the problems that would come with having a king. And he did. And the people responded, even so, we still want a king. We want to be like the nations around us. Our king will judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. So God chose for them a guy who would fit exactly the mold that they were looking for. He went out and he got Saul, brought him in, anointed him as king. Saul was a man's man, a warrior right? Tall, dark, and handsome. He was the guy that from a human perspective, when you look, you'd go, yeah, I want that guy fighting for me. Right? We're kind of hiding in the background, like you go fight for us. This is what the Israelites wanted. And initially it looked like it was working out. Saul was a warrior. Saul led them in battles and they won. But then there came a time when they faced an army that had a bigger, badder champion, right? And this is the part of the story we're so familiar with. So, you know, let's set the scene. We have a valley and we have two, we have two hills. And on one hill, 
We have the armies of Israel lined up in their splendor. And on the other hill, we have the armies of the Philistines lined up. And out of the ranks of the Philistines steps Goliath. Nine feet of nasty standing there in his armor that most people couldn't even put on, much less move around in. Looking intimidating, looking scary, and making Saul look suddenly insignificant. But this was his chance, right? What did the people want him to do? He will go forth and he will fight our battles for us. Here is Saul, our champion. But Saul showed the bravery of Sir Robin when he faced the three-headed knight. He, he was bravely absent. He bravely hid in his tent. Because in verse 11, it tells us, on hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. And then a little down in verse 16, for 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. For 40 days, Saul cowered in fear. He had the opportunity to do what the people expected him to do, but their hopes were in vain. But he was failing in an even worse way than that. As Israel's leader, he was their spiritual leader as well. If you look in the the books of Kings and Chronicles, you see that pattern of talking about the different kings of Israel and of Judah. And they are descriptor as this king did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, or this king did what was wrong in the eyes of the Lord, or what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And when that's qualified, the examples they give of what they're doing was right in the sight of the Lord was to destroy the, ba- the pagan shrines, to destroy the pagan worship, and to point to Yahweh, to the God of Israel, the God who saves as the, as the God who they were to worship. So the king of Israel was not just someone who fought battles, but it was someone who gave spiritual direction. But what was Saul doing here? Saul was sinning against God. Not merely because of cowardice, but because he had forgotten the promises of God and he was not putting his faith in his ability to fight their battles. Remember in Genesis 17 verses seven through eight, God in making his covenant with Abraham says, this is the everlasting covenant. I will always be your God and the God of your descendants after you. And I will give you the entire land of Canaan where you now live as a foreigner to you and to your descendants after you. It will be their possession forever and I will be their God. So this is God's promise. You're my people. I'm your God. This is your land and I'm going to give this land to you. But we've already seen the Israelites fail to trust in that promise. Right? Later, when they're in slavery in Egypt, God comes in through Moses and works in a powerful way and rescues his people out of slavery in Egypt, moves them across the Red Sea, saves them from the army, brings them to the gates, to the the river, across the land that he has promised to them. And they send spies into the land. 
and they see giants, a bunch of Goliaths running around. And they were afraid. And Moses said to the Israelites, don't be shocked or afraid of them. The Lord your God is going ahead of you. He will fight for you just as you saw him do in Egypt. God fights for his people. But these people who had just seen miracles, had just seen amazing works in Egypt, had seen the actual sea part and walk across on dry land and then come back together and destroy the armies of Pharaoh. They'd seen water come from the stone. They'd seen the mighty power of Yahweh their God. And these people didn't have faith that he could help them destroy the giants in the land. And this sin was so severe before God that he punished them by killing off that entire generation, sending them out into the desert to wander and be lost. This is a significant sin. And Saul is having his people repeat it now here before Goliath. The people forgot God's promise. The people did not have faith that God would fight for them. They were in an incredibly dark place. They were deserving of judgment. They were deserving of being wiped out just as their ancestors, the pre that earlier generation had been wiped out. But our God is a God who saves. And in this moment, in their darkest hour, at the right time, where he could have chosen to destroy them instead, God sent his champion. And we know that God's champion differed in many ways than what the people expected. And maybe even differed in certain ways, even in his calling to go. You might expect God's champion to be similar to the story of Moses, where he's encountering a burning bush or the heavens opening up and saying, David, go conquer Goliath. Go rescue my people. But that's not what we see in the story. What we see in the story is his dad's like, hey, your brothers are in the army. I've got some stuff for him. Why don't you take it to him? So David, this insignificant poet, shepherd, take some stuff to his brother. And when he gets there, he sees Goliath come out and take his stand. And he's like, okay, cool. Who's going to fight him? And everybody's like, oh no, nobody wants to fight him. And Saul's offering a big reward that if anybody fights him, they can have this reward. And David's like, what? Like you get a reward for doing that? Why doesn't somebody just go do it? And so he just kept asking questions and he kept questioning them. Like, really? Like there's a reward I don't understand. And Saul actually heard about it and called David to him to talk to him. And David declares like, well, I'll go kill him. And Saul's incredulous. Like you can't fight him. He's a warrior since birth. You're a poet. What are you going to do? Why would David have this confidence? It's because he remembers and he believes the promises of God. Look at what he says first to Saul here. Your servant, 
talking about himself, has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off the sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. Yahweh, who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. I'm going to pause for a second here and kind of ask a question. Have you ever had a rough day at work? Like, I, I know some folks in Texas City had a really rough day on Friday night. I don't know if you saw pictures of that online or on the news, but they had a power outage and they were burning off chemicals from every one of their stacks. Um, my dad, my whole life worked in plants and freeports and I know all about shutdowns. Those are rough days, right? Does it affect their mood? He would be grouchy. The bosses are grouchy because they're just burning money, right? Those are rough days. I work as a teacher. I mean, we have rough days too, but usually mine are something like too long of a line at a copier or something like that. You know what I've never had though? I've never been teaching a class and had a bear break through the door and try to drag one of the students away. I've never had a lion jump in through the window. That seems like a terrible day of work. And David's just speaking about it with such casualness here, but he's a man like, yeah, you know, the text doesn't stay, but like, you have to feel like on one of those occasions, he had to be like, God, really? Like today, I knew I was going to have to deal with the dumb lambs that don't want to grow across the river and, and their stubbornness, but I really have to go fight a lion right now. Like, really, that's what you need me to do. And I think sometimes we feel like that when we're encountering these things. But David's looking back on those times and he's going, God is preparing me for this right here. He's not looking at it simply as a trial. God prepares us to act. But I want you to notice something, because this isn't a sermon, and I don't think the point of this is that, you know, just anything that's hard, we can defeat it, right? It's not the whole like my team, my smaller team is going to be able to beat this bigger team because we prayed before and God helps us beat giants. Like this isn't a, any difficulty we can survive. And it's certainly not a putting hope in our own actions because look at what David said. Even though he gave the example of God preparing him by having him face the bear and the lion, his confidence is not ultimately in his abilities, we see it both in what he says to Saul right here and then later to Goliath. So look back at what he just said, what I just read. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be just like one of them. He doesn't say it just like one of them because like, hey, I killed a bear. I know I can kill him. He's not saying I'm so awesome. I can kill bears. He's saying I know that I can defeat him because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. David has remembered what the rest of them have forgotten. 
that God fights for his people. David understands that it's God who will provide the victory. Now notice in his belief, so this is, so God, so David understanding God's going to win. Does he go and sit back on the sideline and wait for God to win? Knowing God's victory, he selects his stones from the river. He steps out across from Goliath and he says this, what I read earlier, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of Yahweh, the Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, Yahweh will deliver you into my hands and I will strike you down and cut off your head. David also recognizes that this is not a regular fight. If this was just a regular fight, then Saul would be right. How could a poet defeat a giant? Goliath had everything that the people saw as strength. He had huge stature. He had ability. He had power, human power. But this was a spiritual battle. And Goliath had defied the armies of the living God. So Goliath had defied God himself. And all throughout the entire Bible, the Old Testament, the New Testament, we see God as a perfect plan to make his name great throughout his creation. And at this point, he had chosen Israel, set them aside. And Israel's task was to grow their boundaries, to go out to the nations and make his name great. And because of Saul, their leader, they were failing. But God had a perfect plan to make his name great, despite the rejection of his people. God, sorry, David knows that it is God who will win. David doesn't sit around and wait. David knows that God has prepared him for such a time as this. And he remembers what Saul has forgotten. So he steps forward and says, this very day, I will give the carcasses of the Philistine armies to the birds and the wild animals. And the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword and spear that Yahweh saves for the battle is the Lord and he will give all of you into our hands. God wins. And God wins his way, not our way. So as Goliath moved closer to attack, David quickly ran out to meet him, reaching into his shepherd's bag and taking out a stone. He hurled it with his sling and hit the Philistine in the forehead. The stone sank in. And Goliath stumbled and fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with only a sling and a stone, for he had no sword. Israel thought that human strength could protect them. They put their hope in the things of this world. They wanted to be 
like those around them. They looked around in the dying and broken world and said, that's what we want. That's what will make us strong. And they rejected God. They thought they needed this strong, powerful human king who is strong in the ways that the world says is strong. But they forgot that it's God who fights for them. And his champion is not what they expected. His ways were not their ways and his thoughts were not their thoughts. This is a story about a God who saves his people in ways we don't expect. So David, this unlikely king chosen by God, was victorious over the giants. And David did become a better king than Saul. But he was still just a man. And he had failures. He committed murders. He caused uprisings that would eventually tear the entire nation of Israel apart. He did many great things, but he was not the true king. His victory over Goliath was God's picture, an imperfect picture of the perfect victory that was to come. God was preparing his people for his true champion because sometime later, Israel would be facing an outside attacking force again. They were in a situation where they couldn't win. They were conquered by the Roman Empire. And many of the people in Israel at that time were expecting God to send a champion. At least they had that part right this time. But they had the champion wrong. They knew it was the son of David, but they still wanted Saul. They expected this mighty warrior to come in and chariots and an army behind and destroy the legions, bring the sword and the spear against the, the legion of Rome. But Jesus had a humble birth. He was raised in a despised land. He entered as king lowly and riding on a donkey. He died a cursed death on a tree. Similar to David, Jesus was not what the people thought they needed. He was weak in their eyes. But true strength does not come from the things that the world claims to be strong. True strength comes from love of God and love for others. And Paul explains Jesus's love for us in Romans chapter five, when he says, you see, just at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, but though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. When we were like the Israelites, rejecting God, seeking the things of this world instead of God, God came down, sent his son to become like us, to die for us. And Paul explains in Colossians that through this perfect gift of love, 
He forgives us of all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the spiritual powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. God's chosen champion has prevailed. And he has won, giving hope to the hopeless. But he did not win with a sword and a spear. He won and he saved through the thing that this world despises. Love, humility, and submission. Christ, as God, was powerful. He had more power than we could possibly imagine. But as Paul reminds us in Philippians, though Christ was a God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christ is the perfect victorious king. He has accomplished what simple humanity alone could not. He has destroyed the power of sin and death. He has healed the rift between God and his people, fulfilling God's promise, making his name great throughout all creation. So what should we say in response to these things? What should we do? One, is I say we should recognize our tendency towards forgetting God's promises and misplacing our faith. You know, often when we read through the Old Testament, it's easy to like scoff at the Israelites. It's easy to scoff at Saul. It'd be like, Saul, you idiot. What are you doing? How are you not having faith? But these stories are not in the Old Testament to buff us up and make us feel good about ourselves and make us feel better about our own faith. These stories are there as a reminder of our, na as our nature. So even those of us here who have professed God as our Lord and Savior, and we live now covered perfectly in the blood of Jesus without blemish, so long as we live in this world, we will struggle with sin of pride, of fear and doubt and distraction. So in a moment when we pray, confess your need for him. Confess your dependence upon the God who saves. And for those of you who haven't taken the step of faith, you have not acknowledged Christ as the Lord of your life, but instead, you put your hope in the things of this world. 
You put your hope in your own abilities, in science, in an empty philosophy, in those things that provide no hope. I call on you this morning and ask you to put your hope in the victory of Jesus Christ because he has already won on your behalf and given you the strength to humble yourself by confessing that you are a sinner who needs to be saved, repenting from that sin and affirming Christ as the King of King and Lord of Lords in the universe and your life. And finally, as we continue now in this time of worship through observance of the Lord's Supper and through singing songs of praise, give God thanks for his unending love and praise him for his victory. Pray with me now. I want to thank you for joining us and watching today's message. And I want to just go over a quick story with you that's a really important story in the Bible, and it means a lot to me. It's about a man by the name of Nicodemus. See, Nicodemus was a guy who pretty much grew up going to church all his life. And one night he comes to Jesus, and it's late in the evening, and he sits down with Jesus, and he essentially asks him a question. Jesus, how do I go to heaven? How do I get into the kingdom of God? And Jesus responds in John chapter 3 that you have to be born again. Now, Nicodemus asks a very practical question. We all would think, well, how in the world can someone be physically born twice? But Jesus wasn't talking about a second physical birth. He's talking about a spiritual birth, that you have to be born again. See, the Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 that without Christ, our spirits are dead. And we're not able to worship God and love God and honor God. But then when we come to Jesus as the Lord and Savior of our lives, Jesus helps us to be born again. He gives us new birth and our spirits come alive. And so Ephesians chapter 2 again then says, Then by grace you have been saved. It's not a work of yourself. It's the work of Jesus in your life. But listen, that has to be received. You have to receive that gift of grace in your life and believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord and Savior of your life. And simply put it this way, did Jesus do everything he possibly could do to save you on the cross? Or is there something else out there? Is he the only way or are there other ways? You know, the way to be saved is to say Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. And friend, when you place your faith and trust in Jesus and Jesus alone, Jesus forgives you of all your sin, past, present, and future. And when you die, one day, he will take you to be with him in heaven. And so when you think about the wonderful promises of Jesus, I want to encourage you today, right where you are, to receive them and believe in him. And so if you are ready to do that today, let's just bow in prayer. And I'm going to encourage you in your heart today to mean these words because this is what God says, that when we believe in our hearts that Jesus has died on the cross for us, that we can be saved. So would you pray with me? You can simply say, Dear God, today I believe Jesus is the Lord and Savior of my life. I'm placing my faith and trust in Him, in Him alone. Thank you for forgiving me of my sin and one day taking me to heaven to be with you forever. Thank you, Jesus. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.
Amen. Friend, I want to thank you so much today for watching our message and encourage you. If you've prayed today to follow Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of your life, please let us know so we can come alongside of you and encourage you, help you take your next step of faith. You can connect with us at our website, heightschurch.org connect. You can even leave a comment here on this YouTube page and we'll be in touch with you because we want to just come alongside of you and help you take that next step of faith. So until next time, thank you for joining us today and we'll see you soon.